Hello, and welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I'm Sean, and I will be the host for this discussion. In this episode, we will be discussing the mysterious and unusual death of a young woman named Deborah Wolf. This is one of the rare cases in which possible answers become almost more obscure as more and more clues and pieces of evidence are found. It is a death in which the police who investigated the case are adamant was a complete accident, while on the other side, Deborah's family and friends are convinced that there was some type of foul play involved. Within this episode, the lead-up to the death will be covered, as well as the following investigation. I will also go into depth on all the theories and possible explanations involved with this mystery. This uniquely strange death is made all the more interesting by the fact that law enforcement, and the ones who know Deborah the best, stand on opposite sides regarding the ending fate of this young woman. So let us begin unraveling this extraordinary mystery. Deborah Ann Wolf, who often went by Debbie, was a 28-year-old who lived on the outskirts of Fayetteville, North Carolina. She worked as a nurse at the Veterans Administration Medical Center. Although she had tough hours working at the hospital, Debbie was known to really love her job and put a lot of effort into it. Debbie lived alone with her two dogs, Morgan and Mason. Her house was a solitary cabin which resided next to a shallow pond, located in northeastern Cumberland County. Cumberland County houses Fayetteville and one of the United States' largest military bases, Fort Bragg. Interestingly enough, Cumberland County is no stranger to unusual deaths and crimes in recent time, and many of these murder cases are very interesting on their own. However, none that I saw are as strange as the case of Deborah Wolf. I will say before I start that this case was a bit confusing and convoluted to research for, mostly due to the fact that the different sources I've read through has some differing and conflicting notes, mostly disregarding the timeline of events, though. In any case, I will do my best to present this bizarre mystery as clearly as I can. The following would take place the day after Christmas, December 26th, in the year 1985. On that Thursday, Debbie Wolf was working as usual at her hospital. At around 3.30 in the afternoon, she called her mother from the hospital for a quick talk, during which she asked for suggestions on what she could buy her sister-in-law for a birthday present. It would seem that shortly after this call, Debbie would call it a day, as a co-worker would later say that she saw Debbie leaving the hospital at 4 p.m. As it would turn out, this would be the last recorded time anyone would ever see the young nurse alive. During the soon-to-be oncoming investigation, no other witnesses would ever come forward to say that they saw Debbie after she left the VA hospital. Her usual route home would suggest that she would get back to her cabin around 20 minutes after leaving her work. Though her exact whereabouts are unknown after 4 p.m., it is assumed that after her shift, she most likely just headed home to her isolated cabin, which was set about 100 yards back off the main road in the woods. Still, it is not known for sure whether in fact Debbie did make it to her home fine, or if something happened to her along the way that would shape events to come. The next morning, Debbie was expected to show back up to work at the hospital at 8 a.m. as usual. However, she never showed up. This was quite unusual, as she had hardly missed a day at work, and on the rare occasions where she did have to skip out, she always made sure to call and let her supervisors know ahead of time what was going on. On that day, December 27th, the hospital attempted to reach Debbie multiple times to see what was going on, but they never got an answer from her home phone. Later in the morning, when there was still no word from her, the hospital tried calling Debbie's mother, Jenny Edwards. Jenny was concerned after hearing about the news, 
uh, she would say her daughter was always punctual. Disturbed at the lack of communication, Jenny and her friend Kevin Gordon decided to drive to Debbie's cabin to check in on her. Soon after, the pair pulled up outside of the rural cabin. What they would soon find would immediately set off an ominous tone for things to come. Debbie was known for always keeping a clean and organized home, and taking well care of her two dogs. However, as soon as Jenny and Kevin arrived, they could tell that something was amiss. Her property and house looked to be in a pretty poor state, a big mess for someone who usually kept the place so tidy. Empty beer cans were strewn across the front yard. Debbie's 1975 Pontiac was outside of the house, suggesting that she would be home. On further inspection, though, her car was parked in a slightly different location than she normally had it, and the driver's side seat had been pushed all the way back. A few Christmas presents could be seen lying in the back seat. Ginny and Kevin decided to continue on to the house, and when no one answered their knocks, they let themselves in. What they would find inside would confuse them even more. Debbie's mother and her friend found that the home's entrance kitchen door was locked, but the living room door was unlocked. They found a nurse's uniform and a pair of Debbie's shoes lying in the middle of the kitchen floor. The electric heater was plugged in and turned up. Kevin Gordon looked around Debbie's bedroom and noticed that her purse was shoved underneath her bed, something they found unusual. Another thing they found odd was that the water and feeding dishes for Debbie's two dogs were empty. As frantic as the dogs acted when they were given food, it suggested to Jenny that the dogs had probably not eaten since the previous day. This was unusual, as Debbie always had taken great care of her dogs, and it wouldn't be normal for her to forget to feed them for an entire day. Also, the dogs were always chained up outside while she was away, but on this day the pair of dogs were loose and running about the property. While searching around the cabin, looking for any type of clue that would give a hint to Debbie's whereabouts, Jenny Edwards decided to check the answering machine. In fact, the machine was blinking with an unheard message. When Jenny played the message, it would only add to the already confusing situation. On the voice message was a male voice calling from the veteran's hospital, stating that he was concerned about Debbie, hoping that she wouldn't miss any more days of work. I actually have the audio from the voice message, which I will play now so you all can hear for yourselves. Hey, Deb, miss you here at work today. I uh, just wonder how you're doing. Uh, if you're able to give me a call up here at the ward, I'm at 827007, or give me a call at home tonight. Uh, you've been out a lot of days. You made me worry when you miss another one. I just want to make sure you're okay. Bye. Now, this whole message Jenny found to be extremely bizarre, as well as being flat-out false. What this man was saying would suggest that Debbie had missed a number of days at work, which was something that just wasn't true. Debbie hadn't been absent from work in quite some time, certainly not recent enough to warrant such a call. Also, the message had been left earlier that day, while Debbie was actually working at the hospital. This message also didn't even come from any of Debbie's supervisors or colleagues. The whole thing just didn't seem to make any sense. Afterwards, the pair walked around the surrounding woods and around the pond by the cabin, but they didn't see anything of note. Stumped at what was going on, they decided it was time to call the authorities. Jenny phoned the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office and spoke to Captain Jack Watts. After hearing what was going on, Watts sent some police to the cabin. Though the police were now officially involved, 
their conduct and the quality of the ensuing investigation would not be seen as satisfactory for Debbie's family. Officers would soon arrive at the cabin and begin their own search. They brought along some bloodhound dogs to scour the area, hoping to catch some type of trailer scent, but the dogs could not find anything outside of the immediate area of the cabin. And one of the most baffling points of the police investigation, Captain Jack Watts decided to not have the pond beside the cabin search, stating that he believed Jenny and Kevin had already done that before the police had ever arrived on scene. This made no sense to Jenny, as they had no means at all to perform a thorough search of any kind of the frozen pond. The fact that Captain Watts was apparently satisfied enough to allow civilians to conduct a search of the area instead of his trained men in the first place was quite an oddity. During the early stages of questioning, Jenny Edwards remembered from her conversations with her daughter that she was aware of two men that were interested in the young nurse. Both these men had contact with Debbie regularly, as they volunteered at the same hospital. The two men were interrogated by the police, but were quickly dismissed as suspects. One had an alibi, and the other was cleared through after questioning. Feeling frustrated that the investigators seemed to be dragging their feet and unable to come up with any possible leads, Jenny took matters into her own hands. She decided to employ her own divers to finally search the pond outside of Debbie's cabin. Kevin Gordon and his friend Gordon Childress both of whom had experience with rescue work, put together some diving equipment and made their way out to the pond. On January 1st, almost a week after Debbie was last seen, Gordon and Childress entered the freezing water to search for any signs of the missing woman. Childress would quickly spot what looked like two sets of foot impressions set in the thick mud and what could be drag marks heading into the water. The man ventured further in, unaware that he was about to make the biggest discovery in the case so far. Just a matter of minutes after entering the water, Gordon Childress discovered a body. The body of Deborah Wolf was found about 30 feet from the edge of the bank of the pond, submerged in five and a half feet of water. Childress would later say, The body was inside what looked like a burn barrel, a rusty 55-gallon oil-type drum with holes in it. That she was supposedly found in a barrel would later turn into one of the more controversial points of this whole mystery, but I'll get into that a little later. Though Jenny had been frustrated and distrustful to the local police, she knew that she had to call the sheriff's office and inform them that they had discovered Debbie. Officers would again arrive to take over and claim the body. The next day, the coroner would confirm that the body was in fact Debbie. During his autopsy, he would find no traces of drugs or alcohol in her system, and there were no signs of visible foul play. Some found it odd that Debbie had no alcohol traces in her body, despite the amount of empty beer cans found in her cabin. The official death certificate was filed on February 24th, 1986, almost two months exactly after Debbie went missing. The cause of death was listed as still pending, as well as the determination of death as either a murder, suicide, undetermined, or natural causes was also marked as pending. A secondary report was also filed on the same day. However, that listed the cause of death as drowning. In this supplemental document, the medical examiner wrote undetermined, where it was required to state whether the death was due to an accident, suicide, or homicide. A pathologist named Dr. William Oliver reported that Debbie's body showed signs that it had undergone changes characteristic of cold water drowning or immersion syndrome. Deaths typical of these are caused by cardiac arrest. 
The doctor found no evidence of violence, no bruises, stab wounds, or signs of strangulation. It would seem that in both reports, that they did not give a clear view on what exactly happened to Debbie, and especially how she became to be in the middle of her pond. In such suspicious deaths, one could look at the surrounding factors involved in the case to help determine the manner of death. Due to the unusual state of Debbie's cabin, most who learn about the situation would most likely suspect some type of foul play, but the police never believed as much. Also, there were a few findings in the autopsy, though, that would seem to point that this may be a homicide case. She had abrasions on her fingers, which some have said could be seen as defensive wounds. Also, in most cases of accidental drowning, the victim's eyes and mouths would be left wide open, and their arms and hands are outstretched as they literally fight for air. However, Debbie's eyes and mouths were found closed, and her body was resting in a seemingly relaxed state. Also, in most drownings, a white froth or foam-like substance is found in the victim's airways or coming out from their mouth or nostril. This froth can be crucial to indicate if the victim was still alive and conscious at the time of submersion. No such substance was found in Debbie's mouth or airway. Another bizarre fact was that only half a teaspoon of water was found in her upper bronchial area. Despite what seemed to be a lot of clues or signs that pointed otherwise, the police's official ruling was that Deborah Wolf's death was an accidental drowning. Major Charles Smith, the chief of detectives, explained the theory behind their reasoning. Major Smith believes that Debbie had been outside her cabin, perhaps walking her dogs or searching for firewood, and then fell into the water. Some of you may be wondering if Debbie just fell over onto the shallow bank of the pond, how and why would she then go on to make it out 30 feet before finally collapsing and drowning? Major Smith's answer for that is he believed Debbie must have lost her sense of direction in a state of panic, and rather than just turning around and stepping out of the pond, she instead went further out away from the bank into the deeper water. Alternatively, the good old Captain Jack Watts gave his own opinion, stating he believed that one of the dogs fell into the pond and Debbie tried to save them, but ended up drowning herself in its place. Jenny Edwards did not believe this at all and refused these theories regarding her daughter's death. Jenny argued that Debbie never walked her dogs along the pond like the police suggested, and more so, the dogs are great swimmers and wouldn't have had any issues even if one had accidentally fell into the pond. Speaking further on the police theory regarding Debbie's accidental tumbling into the pond, it also doesn't really make much sense. Along the edge of the pond, the water was very shallow, just an inch or two deep. The floor of the pond gradually sloped downwards, meaning you would have to take a number of strides out just for the water to reach up to one's knees. Just like Jenny Edwards, I find it hard to believe that one could inadvertently fall into a few inches of water and then get confused to the point where you can't tell which direction to go in and just keep wading out further and further until you eventually drown. Furthermore, Debbie was an experienced swimmer, so even if she did somehow find herself out in the deeper water, she should have been able to quickly swim back to the bank of the pond. Regardless of this, the detectives stuck by their theory that one way or another, Debbie found herself in the pond, then became frightened and disorientated, moving further towards the deep water, and became a victim of immersion syndrome, and eventually drowned. Ginny countered by stating that if her daughter did in fact drown as stated in the police's theory, why was there so little water found in her lungs? Now, as debated as this case is already, what would come next is one of the biggest points of contrition that Debbie's family and friends would have with the police investigation. 
You'll remember earlier when I stated that Gorton and Childress, while they were searching for Debbie's body and found it, that it was laying inside a large barrel at the bottom of the pond. Well, at the end of the investigation, their sheriff's detectives would completely deny this part of the discovery ever happened. Instead, they would say that there was never such any barrel found on the property, let alone one found in the pond. Once again, they came up with their own theory, explaining this aspect of the body's discovery. One of the investigators would state, What happened to be a barrel to some of the divers could have been Debbie's jacket, which may have ballooned out as she was lying in that angle at the bottom of the pond. Once the news came out about this, that this was the police's official opinion, Debbie's family and friends became outraged. Kevin Gorton strongly rebuted this, sticking to his version in which he clearly saw the body inside a barrel at the bottom of the pond. His friend Childress, who helped discover the body, also backed him up that there was no way they could mistake what they saw. Once the mother, Jenny Edwards, heard that the police were denying that there was any barrel on site, she once again headed to the cabin to prove them wrong. She knew her daughter did in fact have a large barrel where she kept firewood. Once at the cabin again, Jenny went to the spot where the barrel had always been, but now it was no longer there. A deep circular annotation in the ground could have clearly be seen, however, where Jenny claimed the barrel had always been. Whatever the case, the police never collected any such barrel, nor is it mentioned in any of the reports of the scene. On return trips to the cabin, Debbie's family never did find the barrel in which she normally stashed her firewood. Interestingly, though the police's official stance is that there was no barrel ever found at the pond, on the day of the body's discovery, one of the Cumberland County deputies, Don Smith, was overheard mentioning that he had seen the barrel as well. He never gave any further statements, though, on what he had seen that day. Though at this point, Debbie's family and friends remained very frustrated that the local police now considered the case basically closed, they still had no evidence to back up their feelings that some type of foul play was involved. However, there was one more key piece of evidence that everyone had overlooked so far in the autopsy report. Several months after the passing of her daughter, Jenny Edwards was able to retrieve the clothes that Debbie had drowned in. When she was able to examine them, she immediately knew that something was wrong. According to Jenny, virtually every article of clothing that Debbie was wearing when she did die did not belong to her. At the time of her death, Debbie was wearing a pair of brown corduroy pants that were much too large and long for her to wear comfortably. Another oddity was that the pants were unzipped as well. She was also wearing a bra that did not fit her. Debbie wore a 34B, but drowned wearing a 38C bra. She was wearing white Nike shoes that were a men's size 6, again several sizes too large to fit her feet correctly. Now, I have seen that some have stated that this may not be overly unusual, it could be that Debbie wanted to have a pair of sneakers that were a little large for her feet, perhaps for comfort. Also, I've read some people saying that the oversized bra could have been a leftover if Debbie had recently lost some weight. Still, many find it odd that nearly everything she was wearing was a bit too big for her frame. Speaking more about the shoes that Debbie was wearing, Ginny Edwards found it odd that when she examined them, that there was no mud on them at all. She asked the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation about this, and they insisted that the shoes had not been washed or cleaned in any way while they had it. They were returned in the same state that they had received them. How then could it be that Debbie could walk along the muddy bank of the pond, somehow stumble out towards the deeper section, without getting any mud on or in her sneakers? Now going back to her outfit at the time of her death, 
Debbie was wearing a new regulation army fuel jacket that no one had ever seen her wear before, and one that none close to her knew where it came from. Debbie did have an army jacket, which had been given to her by her brother, and she wore it often when the weather got cold, but this was not the same jacket that she wore so often. This new jacket had no name tag, and there was no way to trace back to its original owner. Finally, she was wearing a black t-shirt with the NFL team Pittsburgh Steelers written on the front. Again, Debbie's family and friends had never seen her wear this t-shirt before. Now, if all the other strange circumstances wasn't enough, this was the last straw for Debbie's family. They were now completely convinced that her death did not add up as an accident, which the police were still convinced of. From this point on, Jenny Edwards absolutely believed that her daughter had been murdered. Sometime after the unusual discovery of Debbie's mismatched clothing, another possible clue was found. A friend of Debbie's was at the cabin to feed the dogs and take care of the place when she found something. Debbie's wool stocking cap that she wore often was found in the mud on the opposite side of the pond that she supposedly entered from. Again, this did not add up to the police's official theory, as there was a thin layer of ice on the pond the night Debbie drowned, making it unlikely that the cap could have floated or slid to the complete other side of the pond to get buried in the mud. Another point of debate between the police and Debbie's close ones was the nurse's uniform that was discovered in the middle of the kitchen floor on the day of her disappearance. The police believe that Debbie wore this on her last shift and stripped right out of it when she got home, most likely to change into warmer clothing. However, just like so many other aspects of this case, this would not be a suitable answer for the family. According to a co-worker of Debbie's named Roger, on the last day she was seen she had been wearing a long-sleeve uniform, not a short-sleeve one like was found at her cabin. Roger specifically remembered this because during a break that day, he had accidentally splashed her uniform sleeve with some of his coffee. When Debbie's parents later searched her house, they could never find any such uniform anywhere in her possession. Trying to get more to the bottom of this, Jenny Edwards sent this uniform found on the kitchen floor to a laboratory to get it tested. According to their results, the uniform had been recently washed, and more importantly, it had not been worn since it had been washed. This would suggest that the police's explanation on this randomly found uniform did not hold water. If this uniform did not belong to Debbie, where did it come from? And even more importantly, whatever happened to the actual uniform she had been wearing when she left the hospital on December 26th? At the end of all these confusing circumstances and unexplained pieces of evidence, Jenny Edwards was firmly in the camp that foul play was the cause of her daughter's death. While trying to think of who could possibly have reason or motive to harm Debbie, Jenny remembered the odd voice message left on the answer machine. Whoever this man was, they had called on the day Debbie died, as well as flat out lying about her being absent from work. Putting together the pieces of the puzzle, Debbie's family was convinced that this mysterious stranger had something to do with her sudden death. As usual, the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office had the opposite reaction. They told the family that they had in fact tracked down the man who had left this message on Debbie's phone. This man who had left the message was apparently a patient at the same hospital Debbie worked at, and was in for mental health problems. The police questioned this man but found nothing really linking him to Debbie, as well as there being no evidence he had ever been at the cabin or anywhere close to Debbie on her last day. Regardless of the fact that he had been cleared, the family remained suspicious, even more so when the man left the state shortly after his interrogation. If not the caller, Ginny Edwards believed that someone out there was responsible for the death of her daughter. 
Now, at this point, I've covered all the events of Debbie Wolf's death and the subsequent investigation, and discussed the important pieces of evidence and clues that were discovered, along with a multitude of theories regarding this unusual death. I would like to quickly go over a few interesting points of discussion before I wrap this case up. As strange and unusual as his death was, any explanation you can come up with really comes down to how you interpret the evidence and the situation surrounding Debbie's drowning. Just like Debbie's family, I have my own problems believing the detective's explanation for the events that led to her death. I find it hard to make sense that a person could accidentally walk straight into a shallow pond until they collapse and drown, especially for one who is an experienced swimmer like Debbie. Now, if she had been drunk or impaired in one way or another, I could see that being a likely possibility. But again, remember that the autopsy reports said that her system was clear of any such substances that would explain these type of actions. Also, an interesting side note about her autopsy report, several experts who have looked into it in more recent times believe that it would seem more likely that Debbie had died before entering the pond, due to the very small amount of water found in her lungs. However, this retroactive theory cannot be conclusive, it is merely just educated opinions on the matter. Now going back to the police version of events, Debbie's dogs were familiar to the area and roamed the land often. So I also don't buy Captain Jack Watt's theory that Debbie would jump in to save a drowning dog. I'm not an expert on this subject, but if this was the case, I'd assume that the dog in question would be sick or even dead after being submerged in icy water and then left to fend for itself for over a full day out in the freezing weather. The state of Debbie's house is also still a mystery. Why was the place a mess, random objects strewn about when she was normally so tidy? Also, where did this mysterious nurse's uniform come from, and what happened to the clothing that she had been wearing on her last day of work? It's like you have one puzzle piece missing, and another one that just doesn't seem to fit. The message on the answer machine is another point of high debate in this case. Is it the voice of the murderer, or just an unwell patient at the hospital who had taken a liking to Debbie? The fact that the message is asking how Debbie is doing and saying they are missing her at work on the very same day that she would go missing is certainly bizarre and even suspicious. I've heard from some people theorizing that this message was a preemptive alibi. The killer tried to set up beforehand that he was concerned about Debbie, so he couldn't possibly have done anything to harm her. Remember, though, that this man who left the message was questioned and later cleared by the police. So maybe this message is just a red herring, and in reality is completely unrelated to her death. Still, it would be nice to know more from the police about their interrogation with the caller and what his motives were for calling Debbie and leaving such a cryptic message. The entire barrel situation is another headache all on its own. If in fact her body was found half-stored in a barrel, I don't think that anyone can argue that this was an accidental drowning. The police, on the other hand, remained adamant that there never was such a barrel in the pond, nor was there any such on her property at all. What then happened to the barrel that many of Debbie's family and friends claimed to have seen many times by her cabin? If the barrel was there when the body was discovered, but then disappeared sometime in the day after the police took away her body, that would almost certainly suggest that someone else was involved. This is just yet another smaller mystery adding to the biggest one around her death. Was this matter of the missing barrel just a case of shoddy police work, or was the family just mistaken about the barrel, and it had been gone for some time before Debbie's death? Lastly, what to make of the ragtag bunch of clothing that Debbie was found in? According to her friends and family, none of them had ever seen her wear any of the ensemble worn at time of death. 
one could easily come up with the idea that if she was murdered, the killer changed what she was wearing to hide evidence. However, there was no sign of damage on her body, no cuts, no bruises, no open wounds. In fact, Debbie's body was in such good condition that she actually had an open-faced casket at her funeral service. So then there shouldn't have been much, if any, blood or bodily fluids that would have to be cleaned up, or at least not from Debbie herself. If there was a murderer, perhaps they feared leaving their own DNA or hair evidence on her clothing, so they stripped her and put her in what random clothes they had. Still, though, the fact that there was no bodily signs of foul play is hard to ignore. How would this mysterious attacker kill her in a manner that left no wounds? Also, if they were so concerned about leaving behind evidence, why even bother giving the corpse a new set of clothes instead of just dumping her body nude? Or why not just take some of the clothes out of Debbie's closet to dress her in instead of forcing on random clothes that didn't belong to her if you were just trying to avoid suspicion and make it look like an accidental death? There just seems so many questions regarding this aspect of the death you can come up with, and very few answers. To me, the state of dress that Debbie was found in is perhaps the most perplexing but fascinating part of this whole mystery, and something that I've been thinking about for days now, but still unable to come up with a satisfactory answer. Perhaps some of you listeners will be able to make more sensible conclusions of it all. Debbie's death is certainly strange and unusual, and a case in which one could come up with a handful of theories all of which could be plausible given all the bizarre pieces of evidence found in this case. When all is said and done, however, and whether or not you believe it yourself, to this day, Deborah Wolf's death is still ruled as an accidental drowning, and according to the official report, this case is closed. Thank you all for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you would like to reach us to give your own opinions on this case or to suggest topics for future episodes, please feel free to write to us at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com, or send us a message on our Facebook or Twitter page. You can visit our website, strangematterspodcast.com, where you can comment on, listen to, and download all of our episodes. If you would like to support Strange Matters, you can visit our Patreon page. On Patreon, you can pledge a monthly donation, and in exchange, you can gain access to a monthly bonus episode. If you are interested in supporting the podcast, you can visit the page at patreon.com slash strangematters or visit the support us page on our website. I would like to thank Strange Matters newest supporter, Fiona. So thank you very much. Lastly, I ask if you are listening to the podcast on iTunes and enjoy the show, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review as that helps promote the podcast so we can always reach new listeners. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care everyone.